The text we have this morning, I can speak a little more quietly, uh, is from um, Acts chapter 17, verses uh, 16 through 34. So I'd invite you to uh, turn there. And I'll be reading this passage. And uh, we'll pray and then we'll begin. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue every day with the Jews and the devout persons. Excuse me. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath. Actually, doesn't say that, but that's the intention. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath uh, with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing else except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Father, during this time 
um, as we take our human abilities and attempt to understand the scriptures. We would ask for the special working of your Holy Spirit uh, to guide and to direct us, uh, to guide me in particular as I attempt to expound what this passage says. But for all of us, uh, we need your illuminating work and power to open up our minds to divine truth, to not only clearly understand what your voice and the scriptures are saying to us, but we need to understand in such a way that uh, we are changed by it, we are fed by it, nourished spiritually, motivated, moved in, in every possible way, so that we become conformed more to the image of your Son, our Savior and Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, transformed in such a way that we are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. This is what we would pray for. Of ourselves, Father, we have no ability to do this. We cannot will our way into a greater holiness or a greater conformity to the likeness of your Son. Father, it requires your grace. But we know that the means of that grace is Scripture and the teaching of Scripture. And so we pray. And even as Jesus prayed, sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. In Christ's name, amen. The um, biggest entertainment hit uh, from Disney Studios in these past couple of years has been from their Star Wars division, their home entertainment series, The Mandalorian. Now, what has made this series a great hit, immensely popular, has been the storyline. I'll explain this for the one or two of you who are not in tune with pop culture. Um, the storyline has been strongly crafted around a, a kind of Old West cowboy theme. Uh, there is the lone warrior, the Mandalorian. He sets out on an impossible mission to help rescue a helpless orphan, this baby Yoda-like person. Now, what makes this warrior so interesting is his code of ethics, the Mandalorian Creed. That creed binds him to a certain standard of behavior, one that is inflexible, absolute, unyielding. And the repeated tagline of that creed is this statement, this is the way. In every episode, something transpires in which the creed is invoked to explain or to justify a course of action. This is the way gives the Mandalorian his moral compass, and it gives him his integrity. Now, the writers are very, very smart in this regard. They recognize all the difference in the world between the Mandalorian creed saying, this is the way versus this is a way. Or this is one of many possible ways. The Mandalorian Creed is a moral compass. Those other variations are simply menus of life choices and options, all of which would have basically the same value. When there are many ways, 
It's all up to personal preference. It is the absoluteness of the creed that gives it such power. And that is what gives the Mandalorian his moral compass and integrity in all the conflicting situations that he faces. It's actually the key idea that gives the whole series its gravitas, its weight, its significance. Now, do you see the irony? We have a culture that has produced the Mandalorian. But this culture is in a deep mess. Those who shape this culture have no clue as to what is the way. In fact, they don't really believe there is a way. Rather, they want everyone to have their own way. Uh, No one's way is to be the way except in some fictional world where the creed can say, this is the way. And it gives meaning and significance and weightiness to the Mandalorian warrior and to his mission. But if we take the Mandalorian approach and apply it to the real world, if we apply it to the idea of truth, especially to the truth of the Christian faith, then we face the greatest opposition. If we say this is the way, and we mean Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. If we say this is the way, because there's no other way under heaven given by which we must be saved, then we have sinfully triggered the current post-Christian postmodern American culture. But Christian family, don't let that opposition ever surprise you. And don't let it ever get you down. The early church and the Apostle Paul faced a culture within the Roman Empire that was not so different than what we face in our culture today. And Paul faced these cultural challenges in every town where he preached. And that is why this particular story for Max 17 is rather significant. There's much that it can teach us. Because as Christians, it doesn't matter what time in history. And it doesn't matter where in the world that God has placed us. And it doesn't matter the nature of the culture we still have the mission that God has given to every one of us. The mission to be salt. The mission to be light. And our confidence must be that God has fully equipped us ultimately for that task. And our confidence is vindicated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Now... There's a main lesson, a main idea that I want us to appreciate out of this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning. In spite of the rejection of the message of Christ by our culture, and despite the rejection the message of Christ receives in a contemporary marketplace of ideas, the resurrection of Jesus anchors the Christian faith 
to historical truth and guarantees that this is the way. Now, some background to this passage, important for us to understand. First, the idea of the marketplace of ideas. That's actually directly related to Paul's experience in Athens. Uh, One of the things that was quite common to all of the ancient cities in the Roman Empire and within the Greek culture was this thing called the Agora. Uh, The Agora was the open public square. It was a marketplace in terms of being a commercial center of a city, but it was also the civic center. Uh, Government buildings, uh, libraries, schools, temples, theaters, all surrounding the square. Athens had one of the most developed agoras because Athens in the New Testament times still remained the intellectual capital of the ancient world. Uh, The great philosophers in the earlier centuries had taught there, Socrates, Plato, uh, Aristotle. Uh, So this place was not just a commercial marketplace. It was truly a marketplace of ideas. Religious and philosophical movements were discussed and debated there. Now, as part of this agora, there was the Areopagus, which literally means Mars Hill. But in the text, it refers to the Athenian council that had a particular official function. And that function was to govern the religious and philosophical discussions and debates that would occur within the Agora. Because at that particular time, within the Roman Empire, there was a restriction on religious liberty. A law had been passed that no new religion could be introduced. And so there were some who were understanding what Paul happened to say uh, as he was talking about Jesus and the resurrection, that he was presenting some foreign deities, which would have been a new religion. And so what Paul is going to say, and the, the, the approach that Paul is going to take, is going to, in one sense, oppose that idea. Because Paul is not interested in necessarily violating the law, because Paul actually believes that what he's teaching concerning Christ falls within the fact that Judaism, or the faith of the book, was legal within the Roman Empire. So, Paul is invited to speak at the Areopagus. Most likely, Paul was required to speak before the Areopagus. And we could well imagine that this significant event involved Paul concerned about first refuting what's said in verse 18. This babbler uh, was actually a reference to, quote, a seed picker, someone who would pick up seeds. The idea being that, that there were some who would come through the cities and teach and they would pick up all little pieces of all sorts of different ideas and wisdom and religions and sort of pull them together. And so Paul wanted to dispense with that notion, as well as Paul is going to make reference to this altar to the unknown God to make it clear that he's going to give them the truth of what they worship in ignorance so that his message is entirely within the law of the Roman Empire at that time. So 
Paul refutes the idea that he's introducing a new religion. But he's also taking the Athenian culture further to open up to them the truth about this unknown God that they worship. Now we can break down Paul's message into really three, three aspects. First, the problem as the Apostle Paul saw it there. Secondly would be the, the answer that Paul presents. Thirdly would be the proof of the answer that Paul desires to defend. So look at verses 16 to 22, first of all. This is going to be the problem as the apostle sees it. Now, out of that, on the one hand, Paul sees the low point of religion. And then on the other hand, he sees the high point of philosophy. Paul sees both the low point of religion, the high point of philosophy, as essentially ignorant of spiritual truth. Now, that's an important parallel in our days. We live in a world where there's a huge marketplace of ideas. We see tremendously low points in terms of many religious movements in our culture. We see some high points in terms of some fairly sophisticated philosophical and scientific ideas. But it doesn't matter whether it's the low points or the high points. What you and I can see is this tremendously deep spiritual ignorance with respect to the truth and the truth of Christ. Now, verse 16, the religious perspective, first of all. Paul sees that the city is full of idols. Uh, Paul knows that this is really nothing other than a manifestation of that universal religious and spiritual hunger that all human beings actually possess. Uh, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. Uh, he makes it very clear that uh, the, 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 this religious impulse that all of us are born with has gone awry. Rejected, rejection of the true knowledge of the true God, worshiping and creating idols in the place of the true knowledge of the true God. Uh, this has uh, caused uh, John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Faith to write early on, man's nature is a perfect factory of idols. The city is full of idols because that is what people do. We create things to worship. Yet at the same time, Paul also sees it as a seeking after the reality of God in the darkness of ignorance. Paul knows idolatry is a spiritual dead end. It doesn't bring true enlightenment. Paul points to the altar of the unknown God as evidence. This altar to an unknown God testifies, obviously, to spiritual ignorance. They don't know what they're worshiping, but they know there's something there that they ought to be worshiping. Then verse 18, the philosophical aspects of what Paul is encountering. Epicureans, Stoics, the ultimate intellectuals in Athens of that day. Two very different philosophical systems. Two systems that cannot be philosophically reduced one to the other. If one is true, the other's false. Or 
it's very possible that both of them are false. And any Epicurean and any Stoic philosopher would recognize if I believe what I believe, I can't believe what he believes. And he can't believe what I believe. The law of the excluded middle. But both sides would recognize somebody's ignorant. And if they're really willing to be humble enough to say it, maybe we both fail to have the truth. The problem remains the same in our, in our day and age. All the religious and philosophical systems of the past 2,000 years have taken the search for truth, have taken the search for truth in terms of erasing ignorance, have taken the search for truth in the attempt to establish something that all men are compelled to believe by virtue of it being so obviously true, hasn't happened. It still remains a failed enterprise. Human beings still grope around in spiritual ignorance. But then people will ask the question, does it really matter? People often mean by that question, aren't religious and philosophical ideas simply a matter of personal preference and choice? I mean, isn't it just personal preference? And then they'll cap it off with something like this. What really matters is if you're sincere. That's what really matters. Believe what you want to believe, but, but please believe it sincerely. Let me tell you what hammered home to me how ridiculously, dare I say, stupid that perspective is. The day after 9-11... A friend of Julie, professional colleague, hearing 24-7, nothing other than the strongest language of condemnation of the Muslim jihadist pilots, felt compelled to tone down and to soften those condemnations. She said this, but, but, they sincerely believed that they were doing what their God wanted them to do. But, but, you can't really blame them. They were clearly, obviously so sincere. The problem is, sincerity can never triumph over truth. And yet, this has the strongest hold on people. If we're truly sincere in terms of what we believe, isn't sincerity ultimately all that really matters? Well, let's go back to the early part of the 20th century. And let's tell that to every one of the 1,500 souls that perished on the Titanic. You see, when that boat first sailed from England in 1912, it had been widely promoted and widely believed 
that this ship was unsinkable. The engineering science behind the Titanic's construction had made that claim. So there was within the ship's crew and the passengers an aura of pride and even arrogance that accompanied the maiden voyage. This actually happened. A wealthy woman, as she's boarding the ship, asked the captain, is this ship really unsinkable? And here's what the captain replied. Madam, even God himself could not sink this ship. Now later, as the ship was proceeding at full speed across the North Atlantic, the operator in the radio room received a message from another vessel. It warned that there were icebergs in the immediate vicinity of their ship and the Titanic. So what did the operator do? He wrote the message on a slip of paper. He tucked it under a weight near his elbow. And he continued on with the rest of his duties. He never warned the captain at all because he sincerely believed that the Titanic was unsinkable. And 1,500 lives were lost. Now, the lesson ought to be clear. What we believe is always relevant to life. You can believe wrongly about reality with tragic consequences. And it doesn't matter how sincere you may have been in believing something that wasn't true. You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. So here's the problem. The Athenians were very religious and very philosophical and very sincere in all that they believed. But what they believed wasn't true. Their beliefs were not anchored to the objective truth about God, about his world, about human sin. Now that's the problem as the Apostle Paul saw it. Then in verses 22, 23, he begins to introduce his answer, how he's going to respond to this as he's called upon to testify uh, to what he's teaching, what he's preaching before the Areopagus Council. And so he begins this way. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, what Paul had noticed among all of these idols and altars of worship was this particular one to the unknown God. And this becomes Paul's point of contact. Now, uh, just as a bit of homework, you might want to look up the historical background to this altar to the unknown God. There's some significant things that took place sometimes earlier as to why this altar was erected. But this becomes Paul's point of contact with respect to the audience that he's speaking to. It's the bridge over which he's going to press forward the claims of Christ. 
And the first thing we need to see is that Paul presents the Christian message. His approach is going to be not simply another alternative religion or philosophy. He's going to present what he's going to say as a message of certain truth. Paul's claiming they have ignorance. He has certain knowledge and truth. Secondly, Paul's going to press forward the message of Christ, the truth claims, in a form and a manner that today we would call a worldview presentation. Pay close attention to what Paul has to say here. Because Paul is giving his approach, his answers, in terms of the ultimate questions about life. He speaks to those essential issues that are always at the heart of every religious movement and every philosophical system, such as human identity. Who are we? Human purpose. Why are we? Uh, the nature of reality. Wh what explains the cosmos that we live in? Morality. Who says what is right and wrong? I cannot say this enough. Those four questions are far more important than any other questions you have ever had about life. And I'm not worried of anyone contradicting me with respect to that. Because over and over and over again, it's been proven that if you don't have a firm grasp on reality, you can't know what we are as human beings, you can't know why you are, and you won't know how to live. You can't. And if you go through and analyze what's happening in any and every culture through history, you can anchor it back to the fact that it's a law of logic. If you begin at the wrong place, you will always wind up at the wrong destination. Right? Computer science. G-I-G-O. Garbage in, garbage out. You can never have a conclusion that's better than your starting point. Every starting point determines your conclusion. Except by luck. Right? And I don't think any of you want to live by the roulette wheel. These four questions, without question, are the most important questions that human beings have ever thought about. What is the sense of ultimate reality? And who are we? And why are we? And how are we supposed to live to know right from wrong? Paul gives his answer in terms of these four questions. So he begins, verse 24. What's his starting point? God. Ultimate reality. God. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, God is the creator of all things. God doesn't live in earthly temples because God is himself totally self-sufficient. 
God isn't served by us as though he needs something. Rather, God is himself the source of all life, even the very breath that we breathe. God is the one truly independent being. Everything else depends on God. And it's like youth pastors like to say, to break it down to young minds. But you can appreciate it too. God leans on nothing. Everything else leans on God. So, Paul says, we live in a supernatural world. The world depends totally upon a sovereign creator, God. Reality begins with the one true God who is the creator of everything else. Reality begins with God, not the gods, not nature. And then Paul moves on to the identity question because it follows in terms of what Paul actually is speaking to. Because he goes on to say, who, with respect to who and what are human beings, verse 26, we are God's creation. God, he says, made all of the human race, every nation of mankind, from one man. And God determined that the human race should inhabit the whole world, and God determined the times set for all the nations and their exact places where they should live. And then verse 28, further, he says that we all have this kinship with God. Still speaking of human identity, we all have this kinship with God who is not far from any of us, quoting Paul, since we live and move in him, we live and move and have our being, that we actually exist in the very presence of God. And because God is our creator, Paul goes on to say, we are, quote, indeed his offspring children of God by creation. And still, further, verse 28, Paul adds to what he says, quoting from these Greek writers who made these statements that pointed in the same direction as the biblical testimony. Now, significance of what Paul says. If we are the handiwork of God, we're not accidents of nature. We are not the product of nature or of strange forces or of various gods. Rather, we are designed and created by God, which means we have our identity and value from God. And then Paul goes on to address our purpose as human beings. Verse 27, why did God create the human race? That they should seek God. God created us that we might seek him. Why? Because God wants us to know him. Not in ignorance. The primary purpose of our existence is that we should seek after God. To come to know God. To honor him as God. To worship him as God. To serve him as God. But... Paul is pointing out, human beings are missing their purpose because it's not right to serve God in ignorance. And human beings have this ignorance, even though verse 27, Paul has said, God is actually not far from any one of us because God is everywhere. God is close to us because 
in him, in the presence of his reality, we live and move and have our being. And further, verse 29, Paul is essentially saying, we shouldn't have this ignorance about God. Why? Well, because we are indeed God's offspring. Therefore, quoting Paul, he says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and the imagination of man. In other words, we have this ignorance as human beings, but we shouldn't have this ignorance as human beings. Our purpose is to seek God, but our purpose is not to seek God haphazardly in ignorance. And then that leads to the fourth question, the morality question. Paul says that our relationship to God is ethical. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. God is the final moral governor, Paul is saying. God has the right to lay down commands. God has the right to call all people to repent. Especially God has the right to call people to repent of their ignorant worship. Worship that sins against God, no matter how sincerely it might be practiced. So God has overlooked that time of ignorance, but no more. That time has come to an end. And so in verse 31, Paul says, God is going to bring human history to a day of moral reckoning because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, it's at this point, at this stage, and what Paul has to say, that he's getting ready to introduce Jesus. But Paul surprises most Christians with the direction he now takes. Paul sets the stage to present Christ, not as the Redeemer, but as the God-appointed judge of all the earth. Verse 31, because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Christ is announced to the Areopagus, to the religious and philosophical debaters, not as the Savior and Redeemer, but as the judge of all the earth. And then Paul goes on to say, and the proof of this is the resurrection. Quoting Paul, and of this, God has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul brings forward the resurrection as the proof that God is placing all mankind under judgment. And Christ has been raised in order to be the judge of the living and of the dead. And why did Paul take that approach? The audience did not have any true consciousness of their lost condition. It's difficult to preach Christ as a savior from sin when people don't think they're sinners. It's difficult to say that you need to be redeemed from the lost way of life when they don't believe they're lost. And Paul needed the audience to see first that God exists. 
And he wasn't like anything they were saying he was. And God, Paul needed the audience to see that God was offended, ultimately, by their worship. And that they were all facing a judgment under this world by God through the one that God had raised from the dead, even Christ. They needed to see their clear and present danger. Because there's never any reason to seek Christ as a redeemer if you have no sense that you were lost. Now, as we come to verses 32 to 33, we see that Paul doesn't intend for his message to end here, but it's going to. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. People today mock the concept of the resurrection of the dead. But others said, we will hear you again. So Paul went out from their midst. Now, clearly, Paul wanted to say more. Paul had more to say. Paul was prepared to say more. But the Areopagus took a rain check. Come back later. We're closing this discussion for the day. Now, what does that tell us? People can be very religious and philosophical. But people can also be very far from admitting that they have any ignorance far from admitting that they're sinful human beings. Here's the truth. Until people know they have a problem with God, they're not really seeking that answer. And that leads us then to the final aspect of Paul's presentation. The proof that Paul never got to defend, at least in the Areopagus. Even though Paul didn't say all that he could have said, even though Paul didn't get a chance to say all that he could have said, there's no doubt as to what Paul would have said had he been permitted to go on. We know Paul's message at this particular point. We know what Paul would say. We know almost exactly what Paul would say because he's given it to us in the epistles, but especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let me read verses 3 through 9. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, Last of all, as to one untimely born, Paul says, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, Paul makes several claims, and the claims he makes are based in strong objective evidence of what hundreds of people saw and experienced. First, Note Paul mentions, more than 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus after his death. 20 years later, Paul is saying, most of these first-hand witnesses, most of those who saw Jesus are still alive to talk about it. Secondly, Paul goes on to say, and then all the key leaders of this Christian movement, 
all of them were likewise first-hand eyewitnesses. There's no room for legend here. There's no period of time in which legends can ever, ever develop between when these men saw the risen Christ and when they began to to proclaim the message of his resurrection. Nothing second-hand about their claims. They first-hand had seen Jesus risen from the dead. They know this from direct experience, direct interaction with the risen Christ. Thirdly, Paul then claims that the Jewish book, the Holy Scriptures, prophesied this coming of the Messiah, prophesied his death, prophesied his resurrection from the dead. So there's a comparison with a text that predates the resurrection of Jesus by hundreds and hundreds of years. Fourthly, Paul claims that he himself stands as strong evidence for the resurrection of Jesus because he himself had been a Jewish Pharisee and a zealous persecutor of the church. He had imprisoned many of the early Christians. He had even imprisoned many who then were put to death for following Jesus. Yet, here Paul would have testified that no matter how sincere he was in persecuting Christians, he was sincerely wrong. He acted in ignorance. He believed the wrong things about Jesus. But all of that changed on the Damascus Road when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him. And Paul has his own first-hand eyewitness experience with Jesus. He converses with Jesus. He learns from Jesus. He's tutored and taught by Jesus, transformed by Jesus. And so he goes from being this extreme persecutor of the church to the most zealous and tireless apostle of Christ. His own transformation, sudden, dramatic, profound. And Paul could have, we can imagine Paul would have said to the men of the Areopagus, what explains this transformation in my life? if the resurrection of Jesus did not occur. Because this too is part of the proof of the Christian faith and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. As Paul writes further in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says this, Look, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If In Christ, we have hoped only in this life. That is, if we follow Christ, but he's really dead, and he remains dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And this resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's guarantee that the death of Christ has paid for our sins. We're reconciled to God. The day of judgment will come, but when the world faces judgment, we shall not be condemned because we have received the gift of everlasting life through the resurrected Jesus Christ. Again, our culture is not so different than that of Paul's day. And so why should we believe in the resurrection? 
on the human level, it's because we find the message, reading the message, we find it believable. We find it has a certain ring of truth to it. But ultimately, it's God himself who persuades us and brings the conviction, who opens up our eyes to the truth that we would place our faith in Christ. What does the resurrection then mean for us as Christians? You know Dr. Albert Einstein, historically. You know Dr. Albert Einstein. And you know that he came over to the United States. He became our German scientist, an incredible genius of a man living in Princeton, New Jersey. He left Princeton to go on an out-of-town trip by train. The conductor stops by to punch his ticket. The great scientist has been preoccupied with his work. With great embarrassment, he rummages through his coat pockets, his briefcase, to no avail. He cannot find his ticket. The conductor says, we all know who you are, Dr. Einstein. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Everything is okay. The conductor walks on down the aisle, punching other tickets and so forth. But before he moves to the next car, he turns around and looks. He sees Dr. Einstein down on his hands and knees, looking under his seat, trying to find his ticket. So the conductor comes back and gently says to him, Dr. Einstein, please don't worry about it. I know who you are. Einstein looks up and said, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. <laughs> now, that's the story of our culture. In rejecting all absolutes about truth, people have no idea where they're going. It is all a journey. And that's said again and again. Ah, the destination's not important. Life is a journey. Just enjoy the journey. It's all a journey without a destination. People may think they know who they are, but like Dr. Einstein, they don't know where they're going because this culture has no Mandalorian creed. It can never say. This is the way. Yet, this is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has risen from the dead, and Jesus says, follow me. I am the way. Amen. Our God and our Father, we would even pray now for your grace and mercy. And we would pray now that as we consider coming to the Lord's table, that we would reflect upon what we have in you, what we have in Christ, what you have done for us. And we would ask and pray, Almighty God, that you might give to us the grace to continue to believe, knowing that we're not simply on a journey, that in following Christ, we are truly following the way, the way of life everlasting. Thank you that he has risen from the dead. 
In his name we pray. Amen.